The reading is from Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hands the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you, and also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the words that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, 
Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes themselves a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on a judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us, reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way. Far less of me to far more of you that your son Jesus would be glorified, your people edified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Of the 30-odd years of Jesus' life, with three full years of teaching, of healings, of miracles, what the majority of the Gospels focus on is a singular week. Of that week, a singular Span of 24 hours surrounding his arrest, trial, and execution. And through Lent, we've been looking at that final 24 hours, the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus from John chapter 3 has been our lens. As Jesus said to him and to us, see with the eyes of faith the hour of my glory, See the exaltation of the cross. See me lifted up. And you'll be born again. Forgiven, made new by the power of the Spirit. We're being told by the gospel writers and John specifically, nothing less than if we want to understand Jesus, his identity, his teaching, his miracles, his healings, we need to go to the cross. We're being told that if we want to be forgiven and made new by the power of the Spirit, we need to go to the cross. So let's once again go to the cross. If you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 18. It's striking really that to understand the cross, we don't usually go to the Gospels. Oh yes, we say the Gospels tell us the details of Jesus' death, but they don't give us the meaning. 
for the meaning, we've, we've got to go to Paul. We've got to go to the epistles. And from Paul and the epistles, we often build a systematic theology of the cross, but without the gospel witness, that theology often becomes untethered, skewed, far less biblical. When the Gospels look to the cross, they don't give us theories of atonement so that we can wrap it up into a nice, neat package of systematic theology. The Gospels give us narrative, give us story. And John, in this text, weaves a masterful narrative that drips with, is infused with irony. An irony that brings into crisp focus exactly what we're meant to see about Jesus, about the cross, to see with the eyes of faith that we would be forgiven and made new by the power of the Spirit. We pick up the story at verse 28. Jesus is led away to the governor's headquarters, Pilate's Jerusalem residence. Pilate had been appointed governor some seven years before by Emperor Tiberius due to his connections to a prominent family, He was a ruthless leader who had little sensitivity to the Jewish worldview. You see, when Roman officials would enter into the city of Jerusalem, they would come with a detachment of soldiers. Those soldiers would carry standards. On the standards was a metal bust of the emperor. The Romans considered the emperor to be divine, and so the Jews saw that as idolatrous, graven images, unwelcome in the holy city, And so out of deference to those religious sensibilities, Roman officials would remove the standards before they entered, not wanting to unnecessarily cause unrest. Not so with Pilate. His first official visit, he marched straight into the city, standards raised high. Riots ensued for days. When he left the city, the mob followed him back to his home in Caesarea. When he couldn't disperse the crowd, he gathered them all in the amphitheater to try and sort it out and surrounded them with troops and ordered them to disperse upon threat of death. They bared their necks, then kill us. Even Pilate wouldn't murder defenseless men. He was beaten. His policy changed. Not a good start to a political career. Next, he determined to solve the problem of an inadequate water supply to Jerusalem. He would build an aqueduct. How to fund it? He robbed the Jewish temple of millions. Riots ensued. He sent plainclothes soldiers into the crowd to beat and murder the protesters. Next, he wanted to do some interior decorating to redo the headquarters that this scene takes place in, and he decorated the walls with votive shields, again carrying the image of the emperor. The Jewish officials balked, complained bitterly to Rome. Caesar himself ordered their removal. Now, just before the interaction in this text, his political connection in Rome that had got him the job who was given the honorific title friend of Caesar, was accused of treason and murdered. Pilate is on very shaky ground. His position, his power, in question, one more slip up, he'll be recalled to Rome and deposed or worse. 
It's Passover season. He's in the city of Jerusalem to keep the peace as over a million religious pilgrims would descend on the city to celebrate God's rescue of his people from oppression under the Egyptians. It was a politically charged celebration. As yearning for God's rescue from the hated Romans was up to a feverish pitch, it's about 3 a.m. There comes a knock at his door. He opens the door. It's the Jewish officials. He would given a detachment of soldiers to, to arrest a potential insurrectionist. Pilate invites them in. They refuse, according to their customs, to come into the home of a Gentile was to defile themselves and not be able to eat the Passover. The scene drips with irony right from the opening lines as they are deeply concerned about being clean, pure, undefiled as they subvert justice, manipulate truth to bring an innocent man to his death. What charge do you bring against this man, Pilate asked. The Jewish officials, they're, they're vague at best. Well, we wouldn't have brought him to you if he hadn't done anything wrong. Well, Pilate has no time for games. Deal with it yourself then. You won't manipulate me to get what you want. We can't sort it out ourselves. We don't have the ability to put anyone to death. Their motive's now clear. They want death. Not just any kind of death. They want crucifixion. Which was about more than death. It was a long, drawn-out agony. It was about shame, humiliation. The person publicly exposed, naked, ridiculed, often soiling themselves. With their goal revealed, the officials changed their tactics. Presumably, given Pilate's next question, they accuse him of making a, a claim of kingship, a threat to Rome. So Pilate enters the house where Jesus is in a Gentile home. In the Jewish mind, he's defiled, unclean. And Pilate asks, are you king of the Jews? There's no way that Jesus can answer that question head on. Because in Pilate's mind, he's asking, are you the leader of another uprising that we're constantly putting down in this blasted country? Do you have a zealot-like design against Rome using guerrilla tactics to establish an alternative political kingship? He can't answer that question head on. And so as Jesus often does, he answers the question with a question to reframe the entire interaction and then he can answer. My kingdom doesn't follow the pattern of this world. If it were, my followers would have used guerrilla tactics to keep me from this very predicament. But that's not how my kingdom works. And I've come to bear witness to that. And those who are my followers will live in line with that truth. And Pilate famously responds, What is truth? And then walks out. Sufficiently convinced that Jesus bears no threat to Rome, and the Jewish accusations misplaced at best, Pilate returns to the accusers. I'm not seeing what you're seeing here. This man's innocent. And so I want to give you the opportunity to back out of this gracefully. You've got this custom at Passover that I release someone to you, so why don't you save face here by letting me release to you this king of the Jews? And they cry out, 
Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas. Bar-Abba, meaning son of the father. The earliest texts of Matthew tell us his first name was Jesus. Mark tells us that he was arrested for being a part of an insurrection, terrorist activity against Roman power. The word robber was used of those who would pillage and rape under the guise of being freedom fighters. They cry out, Give us Barabbas, not that Jesus, son of the Father. Give us this Jesus, son of the Father. Give us Barabbas. Give us the terrorist. Pilate's stuck, right? He wants to release Jesus, has no appetite for releasing a known terrorist. So he thinks to himself, if it's humiliation of Jesus that they want, I'm going to give it to them. He has Jesus whipped, sends his soldiers to mock and beat him, twisting a crown of thorns upon his head, taunting, Hail, King of the Jews. He brings Jesus out to the Roman officials, bruised, beaten, bloody. The pulper robe around him, mocking that claim of kingship, Pilate contemptuously ridicules, Behold the man! His attempt to satisfy their desire for humiliation backfires. Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time, Pilate insists innocence. Not at all, they say. We've got this law that anyone who blasphemes against God is worthy of death. He made himself son of God. Blasphemy, death. Now we're told Pilate's afraid. Why now? Well, the coinage of the Roman Empire bore the image of Caesar. Inscription around the edge read, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. That inscription was Caesar's claim. I am king, son of God, high priest. Is Jesus making a counterclaim? I am king, son of God, high priest. Well, that would be treasonous. That would be a threat to Rome. So Pilate goes back inside. The interrogation continues. Where are you from? Silence. Answer me. Don't you know I've got the power to crucify or release you? You would have no power unless given to you from above. One last time, Pilate seeks release. Jewish officials press in. If you do that, you're no friend to Caesar. The honorific title of his murdered political connection. The political chess match has met a checkmate. His power already precarious is standing with Rome already on shaky ground. Pilate capitulates to their desires. He brings Jesus out, verse 13, and sits down on the judgment seat. The Greek is very ambiguous. Who is on the judgment seat? Is it Pilate or is it Jesus? The ambiguity leads the reader to consider that it is Jesus who is seated on the judgment seat as Pilate mocks, Behold your king! Should I crucify your king? 
And the chief priests respond, we have no king but Caesar. Now the irony weaved through the entire text is brought into sharp focus in terms of what we're meant to see about Jesus, about the cross. For this Jesus, the one they mock, behold the man, is the word made flesh. The embodiment of renewed humanity, the perfect reflection of God. This Jesus, the one they mock, behold your king, is the Lord King of creation. This Jesus, the one they mock, placing him on the judge's seat, shall I crucify your king? Is the one who from a heavenly throne will judge the living and the dead. This Jesus, they accuse, is a traitor against Rome, terrorist, zealot-like aspirations to set up an alternative political kingdom. As they cry out, not that Jesus, son of the Father. Give us this Jesus, son of the Father. Give us Barabbas. Give us the terrorist. This Jesus, they accuse, is a blasphemer. He calls himself son of God. As they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. At every worship service, these very high priests would affirm that God alone is king. At the end of the Passover celebration, these very high priests would lead the people in the singing of the great Hallel, and I quote, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Besides thee, we have no king, redeemer, savior, liberator, deliverer, provider. We have no king but thee. They're accusing Jesus of the very same things that they are guilty of. They have put God on trial for their sins. This is not the first time this has happened. In Exodus 17, God is put on trial. It's a passage that sheds an incredible amount of light on what's happening here with Jesus. In Exodus 17, Israel's out in the wilderness. They've got no water, and they come to their leader, Moses, complaining against God, essentially charging God with criminal negligence. How could God drag us out here and then let us die, not giving us what we need, not doing right by us? So God says to Moses, have the people assemble at the rock and, and bring your rod. Now what that meant is that there's going to be a trial because that rod is the rod of God's authority, his justice. And Moses is probably thinking, okay, you're in for it now. You've put God on trial, you've charged him, that's not, not going to go well. And when they get to the rock, amazingly God says, I'll stand on the rock before the people. There's no place in Scripture where God stands before the people. It's supposed to be the other way around. People are meant to stand before God. And God tells Moses to strike the rock on which he's standing. And Moses does. And out comes water, and they're saved. God is put on trial, is struck with the rod of justice, and out comes water. Why should a people who deserve justice get 
blessing. Here in Pilate's courtroom, the Lord King and Judge of the universe is on trial. He's seated in Pilate's judgment seat, being judged, accused of the very sins they are guilty of. The guilty are accusing the innocent. We have in this scene, then, the very heart of the human condition, the very nature of the divine solution. John Stott put it perfectly when he wrote in The Cross of Christ. The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives which belong to God alone and God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. Right after World War II, there was a play written in Germany called The Sign of Jonah. Right after the war was over, the German people began to recognize the magnitude of the Holocaust. And it created a crisis in their society as the question was, Who should go on trial for this? Because someone's got to go on trial for this. And in the play, they they go to the the homemakers and the business people, and they say, you should go on trial for what happened. And they said, no, 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 no. It wasn't us. It was the guards. They knew what was going on. They should go on trial. And they go to the guards, and the guard says, no, 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 no. We were just taking orders. It was the officers. And they go to the officers and say, no, 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 we should not go on trial. It's the people above us. So everybody gets out of what they deserve by pointing and saying, no, those other people should go on trial. Near the end of the play, everybody realizes, we know how we can get out of this. Let's blame God for the Holocaust. He could have stopped it. He let it happen. He created a world in which it happened. They put God on trial. They found him guilty. They sentenced him. They say, let him become a human being. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless, hungry, thirsty. Let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and humiliated. See, they did the atrocities. They say, we'll blame God. They're demanding that God pay for their sins. The heart of the human problem is that we claim prerogatives which belong to God alone. The heart of the divine solution is that God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. In this scene, God is put on trial for the very sins of his accusers and is sentenced to death. See me lifted up. With the eyes of faith, see me the pure defiled that you the defiled might be made. See me, the sinless, condemned that you, the sinful, might be forgiven. See me, the source of life brought to death that you, the dead, might be made alive. See me lifted up. But that's not all that John wants us to see. In verse 14, he abruptly stops the dialogue to locate that moment of condemnation. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, the sixth hour. 
Meanwhile, across town, in the temple, that very hour, they're beginning to slaughter the lambs for the Passover meal. John is saying, if you want to see the meaning of his death, the meaning of the cross, look no further than the Passover story. And what do we see in the Passover story? That first Passover, the demonic forces of darkness, slavery, and oppression that bore the face of an Egyptian pharaoh were defeated. As the people were set free to worship their God and be formed into a new people, a new kingdom. This final Passover, the demonic forces of darkness, slavery, and oppression bearing the face of high priests and the powers of Rome and Pilate are defeated. The people set free to worship their God and be formed into a new people, a new kingdom. And what does it mean to be a new kingdom? Jesus has already shown us at the cross in his conversation with Pilate. My kingdom's not of this world. My followers will not follow the pattern of this world, will not follow the pattern of the high priest and Pilate. They will bear witness to a new kingdom, a new pattern, a new truth. Jesus is saying, amongst other things, my followers won't take up the sword in my name. My followers won't yield political power in my name. No one of my followers should ever rule and say, this is a Christian government, And we're going to use taxation and laws and force to get you to live as Christians. No. No. Well, you might think, well, we did that. Yes, we did. Look how it turned out. Lots to repent of. And where is it that Christianity is in decline? And where is it that Jesus is being rejected? And where is it that the gospel is so skewed and twisted out of shape? It is where power was or is wielded following the pattern of this world. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. The way of laying down our lives, ourselves, for the sake of the other. From its early days, the kingdom of Jesus advanced as followers laid down their lives for the sake of others. As the plagues hit the cities, the Romans fled. The Christians remained behind to care for and minister to those sick and dying. The Romans let, laid their unwanted babies out to die, a huge number, the majority of them girls. The Christians took those unwanted babies into their homes to raise as their own. They followed the pattern of the cross, laying down themselves for the sake of others. In his book on the cross entitled The Day the Revolution Began, N.T. Wright reflects on where he's continued to see this pattern of Jesus at work through his followers. As Christians lend their voices to the voiceless calling for prison reform, opening homes to refugees, cleaning up impoverished neighborhoods, campaigning governments to forgive developing world debt in the face of corporate bailouts that led to absurd executive bonuses. In light of Jesus' work on the cross, Wright puts it, a central part of our vocation is prayerfully and thoughtfully to remind people that there's a different way to be human, a true way. It means being prepared to confront the world as Jesus did with Pilate, with a new vision, 
of kingdom, of truth, of power. See me lifted up with the eyes of faith. See me, the sinless condemned, that you, the sinful, might be forgiven. See me lifted up. See that the cross sets you free from the powers of darkness, the pattern of this world, that you might be a new people, a new kingdom, laying down your lives for the sake of others. See me lifted up that you might be born again, forgiven, made new by the power of the Spirit. See me lifted up. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.